Now, I've chosen to speak to you, and not just to you, but also with you, because I understand that there will be a long and deep discussion afterward, another delight that I can assure you is not often found on America's college campuses. I have chosen to speak with you about Homer. That said, Virgil will make an appearance as well, and for reasons that have to do with both the microscope of my title and the wide-angle lens. You will soon see, I hope, what I mean by both forms of vision. But in brief, I would like to examine Homer very broadly by thinking about times other than the late first millennium BC and about languages other than Greek and Latin. And I would at the same time like to examine Homer very narrowly by reading his works from bottom up as it were. That is to say, by thinking first off not so much about the big picture as about little phrases, some of them what are technically called formulas that contribute to the success of the work as a whole. Now, some of you will naturally appreciate or prefer some parts of the talk to others. That is only to be expected. But I trust that all of you will come away from our adventure having learned a new way or two of thinking about familiar, important, foundational texts. Homer is often called the father of Western civilization, or at least a father. This is not a new idea. To take a prominent example from the end of the first century AD, consider the great Roman rhetorician Quintilian. You may have heard of him, first of all, because his views on prose style are indebted to Aristotle, and also because what he has to say about education has much in common with the conception of the several of the seven liberal arts in medieval times and had a considerable curricular influence in the Renaissance beginning in the 15th century and thus on St. Thomas Aquinas, on the Thomistic tradition, and on what and how you learn at TAC today. In book 10 of his Institutes of Oratory, in Latin, Institutio Oratoria, Quintilian has these laudatory words for Homer. Like his own conception of ocean, which he says is the source of every river and spring, Homer provides the model and the origin of every department of eloquence. No one surely has surpassed him in sublimity, in great themes, or in propriety in small. He is at once luxuriant and concise, charming and grave, marvelous in his fullness and in his brevity, supreme not only in poetic, but in oratorical excellence. Note the lovely phrases, sublimity in great themes and propriety in small. And remember that I'm going to take both a wide lens and a microscope to our hero of the evening. Now, by conventional reckoning, Homer lived about three-quarters of a millennium before Quintilian. That's almost twice the temporal distance between us and Shakespeare, and a greater distance than between us and Chaucer, sometimes known as the father of English poetry, who died in 1400, just one year into the reign of Henry IV, who was remarkably the first English monarch since the Norman invasion to have English as his native language. So Homer, that ancient Greek poet to whom are attributed two monumental epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, certainly had staying power. And as you already know, though I will flesh this out a bit for you, he still does. There is no shortage of Greek authors from the second half of the first millennium BC who quoted or mentioned Homer. The fifth century Herodotus, for instance, whom Cicero, more on him later, called the father of history, and to whom is attributed, quite wrongly, alas, the longest ancient biography of Homer, which almost certainly dates to well after the time of Quintilian. If, however, we are to give credit for Homer's reputation today to an ancient author other than the proverbial blind bard himself, that person is a Roman, Publius Virgilius Maro, who lived from 70 to 19 BC. You do not need me to introduce a Virgil to you. 
His final and most famous work, the Aeneid, might be called the Latin counterpart of and response to the Iliad and the Odyssey together. It is a simple fact that Virgil could not have written this other great pillar of our culture without Homer's model. But that is just a small and early part of a much larger story. Some 1,300 years later, Dante could not have written his Divine Comedy without Virgil, who could not have written without Homer. Sixty or so years after that, Chaucer, whom I have already mentioned, could not have written his Troilus and Criseida without Dante, or without those classical authors he explicitly names with honor toward the end of the fifth and final book, including Virgile and Omer, whose name he spells without the initial H, as would the Nobel Prize winning Santa uh, Lucian poet Derek Walcott in his 1990 novel-length epic poem Omeros. And to come to the greatest of English bards in his play Troilus and Cressida, Shakespeare, besides owing an obvious debt to Chaucer, probably took inspiration from George Chapman's then brand new translation of the Iliad into English, a work of 1598 that inspired one of the greatest romantic sonnets in the language, John Keats's On First Looking into Chapman's Homer of 1816. And to continue, almost three centuries after Chaucer, John Milton in the 1660s and 1670s could not have written his brilliant epic poem about the fall of man, Paradise Lost, without Dante's Divine Comedy. And right here in America, Herman Melville could not have written Moby Dick and other works without Milton, who could not have written without Dante, who could not have written without Virgil, who could not have written without Homer. And this is to say nothing of such 20th and 21st century incarnations as James Joyce's Ulysses, Joel and Ethan Cohen's 2000 film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And the fascinating... That's not that funny, is it? I don't know. And the fascinating takes on the Iliad and the Odyssey from the past dozen years by the English poet Alice Oswald, titled respectively Memorial and Nobody. Now, you may well be getting dizzy trying to keep all this straight, but I'm not going to apologize for that since that's precisely the disorient effect I'm hoping for. As the literary critic Harold Bloom famously put it in 1975, everyone who now reads and writes in the West of whatever racial background, sex, or ideological camp is still a son or daughter of Homer. In short, Homer is everywhere, and not merely in the West, either. We can be certain that his influence will not wane anytime soon. The tradition will continue, perhaps, I hope, I pray, for thousands more years. Tradition. Few concepts are more important to society. Yes, there are bad traditions as well as good ones. But the way individuals, families, and polities move ahead, the way civilization itself thrives, is by respecting and building on the wisdom of the past, which in a functional society is handed down through the generations. This is what the word tradition literally means. English has taken the word from Latin traditio, the noun that corresponds to the verb tradit, hands down which is itself historically a compound of the verb dot, gives, and the prefix trans, across. The idea is that tradition is what is given across the generations. Parents impart knowledge to their children, and the children grow up and impart and transmit knowledge to their children in turn, and so on and so forth and so on and so forth over the decades, centuries, millennia. Consider now a Latin verb similar to trodit in both form and meaning, transfert, which means bears across, conveys, and has landed in English as the word transfer. The so-called past passive participle of the Latin verb is irregular, translatus, that which has been conveyed, and this is the source of our translate. Which brings me back to Virgil and to a specific example of Homeric influence, of the transfer and translation of the Greek tradition into the Roman. I expect everyone knows the first words of the Aeneid, arma virumque 
Americano. In English, of arms and a man I sing, or in the idiosyncratic translation of Robert Fitzgerald, which I've been told is what you read here at TAC, I sing of warfare and a man at war. But do you know the final words of the Aeneid? Almost certainly not. And this is a pity, this is a pity, because although not quotable in the same way, they should nonetheless be familiar to careful readers of the poem. The final three verses, 950 to 952 of book 12 of the Aeneid, close the epic with surprising abruptness as Aeneas kills his antagonist, Turnus. Fer adverso sub pictura condit, fer vidus asceli sol vuntur frigora membra, vitaquacum gemitu fugit indignata sub umbras. Here's Fitzgerald. Aeneas sank his blade in fury in Turnus's chest, then all the body slackened in death's chill, and with a groan for that indignity, his spirit fled into the gloom below. And that's it. The ending is so unceremonious that some have wondered whether this is really how Virgil wished to tie up the epic, whether there was supposed to have been a 13th book and more. For my part, and this is not an idiosyncratic opinion, I'm happy with the ending. But whatever the case may be, Virgil's description in the second and third of these three verses, in which Turnus dies and his soul leaves his body, Virgil's description is unquestionably a light adaptation of a repeated pair of Greek verses that describe the two most consequential deaths in the Iliad. The death of Hector at the hands of Achilles in book 22, near the end of that poem. This is the analog of the slaying of Turnus by Aeneas in the Aeneid. And six books earlier, the death of Achilles' companion Patroclus at the hands of Hector. So here's the Greek to which we will return, followed this time by the preferred translation in these parts by Richmond Lattimore. Psyche de Creteon Pramene Aidoste Bebeke, Hon Pot Mongoos Lepus Androteta Kaheben. And the soul, fluttering free of the limbs, went down into death's house, mourning her destiny, leaving youth and manhood behind her. Furthermore, Virgil has already used the very same words about life fleeing to the underworld with a groan of another death in the Aeneid, that of Turnus's ally Camilla in Book 11. And this move is intentional. Homer uses his formulation exactly twice for thematically connected deaths, with the first prefiguring the climactic second. And then Virgil does the same. So this is an adaptation, a shorthand translation, so to speak, of Greek material into Latin. But plenty of other ancient figures quote Homer directly. Interestingly, it's not just Greeks who quote Homer in Greek, but also Romans. So let me offer two examples, beginning with one of the most famous of all Greeks even today, someone who liberally quotes Homer, the philosopher Socrates, who was born around 470 BC and died infamously in 399 when he drank hemlock after being convicted of impiety and corrupting the youth of Athens. When you think of Socrates, you are likely to think in the first place of his student, Plato, who lived from the 420s until 348, and it is undeniable that Plato's view of Homer is complicated. The philosopher believes that poetry can be harmful and that it is thus entirely wrong for people to revere Homer and many other poets besides. And yet, paradoxically, he quotes Homer extensively throughout his works. As Plato famously put it in Book 10 of The Republic, there is an old quarrel between philosophy and poetry, and he banishes Homer from his ideal city-state ruled by the philosopher king, a utopia he calls Callipolis, literally beautiful city. But what did Plato's great teacher, Socrates, think about poetry? Questions about the so-called historical Socrates, as opposed to the literary figure, are necessarily tricky. 
But it is a matter of record that both Plato and his contemporary Xenophon regularly have Socrates speak about and quote directly from Homer. And a particularly interesting tidbit comes from the memorabilia of Xenophon, Socrates' friend who, in addition to being a historian and a philosopher, was renowned as an outstanding military commander. His best-known work is the Anabasis, which tells an extraordinary story of the march of a large group of Greek mercenaries, the so-called 10,000, across Asia Minor and Mesopotamia. But back to the memorabilia. This is a collection of Socratic dialogues that act, in effect, as Xenophon's own defense of his friend. And from this work, we learn that an accuser of Socrates reports that the philosopher often quoted a description of Odysseus from Book Two of the Iliad. What is this passage that evidently so grabbed Socrates? Well, it describes how Odysseus roams through the people, telling men of note that it is unseemly to act like a coward and using both his rhetoric and, yes, his scepter to inform common men who are making a ruckus that they should listen to their betters. According to his accuser, this demonstrates that Socrates accused of chastising and even beating ordinary people. But, as Xenophon says, this is not at all what Socrates thought. Rather, and I now quote Xenophon, Socrates showed himself to be one of the people and a friend of mankind. And what he did say was that those who render no service, either by word or deed, who cannot help army or city or the people itself in time of need, ought to be stopped even if they have riches in abundance, above all, if they are insolent as well as inefficient. Well, from Homer's Odysseus to Xenophon Socrates to America in 2023, if you wish to understand the importance of Homer today, you can do worse than take these wise words to heart. We are all able to recite the names of people in power who fail to use their literal and metaphorical fortune for the common good, whether through inefficiency or worse, insolence. My exhortation to you, write out Homer's and Xenophon's wisdom of the ages, tape it above your desk, and then go out and be brave, not cowardly. And now a second example of a direct quotation of Homer, but this time from a Roman. Indeed, from one of the most famous of all Romans, even today, the polymath Marcus Tullius Cicero, who lived from 106 to 43 BC. Cicero, who was a politician, a lawyer, a philosopher, a rhetorician, and much else besides, quotes Greek regularly. And it is not at all surprising that the poet whose words he echoes the most, by far, is Homer. What is perhaps surprising is that there is one passage in the Iliad that Cicero quotes six times in whole or in part, all in letters he exchanged with his wealthy close friend and occasional patron, Atticus. I deomai troas kai troadas helkesi peplos, which means I feel shame before the Trojan men and the Trojan women in their trailing robes. Why would Cicero have cared so much about these words? What are they all about? The verse in question appears twice in the Iliad, both times in the mouth of the greatest of the Trojan heroes, Hector. Hector speaks at first in one of the most moving scenes in the epic, toward the end of book six. I never quite know what to say when asked what my favorite part of the Iliad is, but this is one of them. It never fails to make me cry and you'll surely recall it yourselves. Andromache, Hector's dear wife, begs him not to return to war, but to stay behind so that she is not widowed and their son orphaned. He is sorely tempted, for he loves his family, but the honorable thing is to fight to the death. And this is what he says in Lattimore's translation. Yet I would feel deep shame before the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing garments if, like a coward, the word he uses is kakos, literally a bad man, if, like a coward, I were to shrink aside from the fighting. 
Then in Book 22, Hector's other two closest family members, his parents Priam and Hecabe, beg him to retreat. But he refuses. He says these very same words to himself, and he goes to meet his fate. Cicero, like Socrates, was no coward. He may well have imagined that he would end up like Hector, slain on a battlefield. In fact, he was assassinated by henchmen of his political enemy, Mark Antony. So then, what an extraordinary use of Homer this is. A phrase of honor, a phrase of defiance, a phrase in defense of country that Cicero used repeatedly for well over a decade in letters to a friend. It is not just Homer whose words can move me to tears. Cicero's invocation of Homer can as well. And I want to say something about the United States before I move on. This is not my brief today, but it is important to acknowledge and to stress to those who don't appear to care about tradition, who don't appear to care about what is good, beautiful, brave, and right, that both Socrates and Cicero have had a profound influence on American life. It will suffice to note that Martin Luther King Jr. mentioned Socrates three times in his magnificent 1963 letter from Birmingham jail, and that Cicero was a model for the founders, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and above all, John Adams, who wrote in a defense of the constitutions of government of the United States of America, published in the late 1780s, that, quote, all the ages of the world have not produced a greater statesman and philosopher united in the same character. My aim is not to defend Adam's enthusiasm, which many will regard as excessive. Rather, the point is a variation of something I stressed at the start of this talk. Without Homer, we would not have Socrates and Cicero, and without Socrates and Cicero, we would not have America as we know it. The best of America, I mean, rather than the appalling polarization that characterizes so much of our politics and so many of our day-to-day -day personal interactions in this age of deep discontent. And so you are, I hope, beginning to understand how I am combining the microscope and the wide-angle lens. I have been describing a world in which Homer is pervasive, at the same time, rather than resort to generalities, I have been endeavoring to demonstrate Homer's influence by means of a close look at a few short quotations, and very likely not all quotations that have previously stood out to you as especially worthy of attention. But there is more to say about all this, and in the second half of my remarks this evening, I would like to take you on some further adventures, both big and small, with an emphasis on matters that generally do not receive a lot of attention, but that I find especially interesting. These matters, too, concern tradition, but tradition turned, one might say, upside down. So far, what I have done is call attention to the importance of Homer by giving examples of the tradition of which he is at the head, or so people generally maintain. But Homer was not, of course, the first poet in this tradition, or for that matter, others. In his dialogue, The Brutus, which is actually largely an extended monologue that traces the history of classical, especially Roman, oratory, none other than Cicero points out that there's no reason to doubt that there were poets before Homer, making the perfectly obvious remark that, after all, Homer himself in the Odyssey describes bards of old and their songs, most famously Demodocus in Book 8, who sings Iliadic lays about Odysseus and other heroic figures. Indeed, this singing takes place at the Phaeacian court of King Alcinous, where Odysseus, whose identity is unknown to his hosts, is actually in the audience, a touch of mise en abime that were this poem not from thousands of years ago, one would be inclined to label postmodern. The fact is that when people speak of Homer as a traditional poet, which he certainly is, what they mean is not that he is at the head of the tradition I have been describing from the 8th century BC to the present via Socrates, Virgil, Chaucer, Milton, and MLK. 
Rather, this designation indicates that Homeric poetry itself is the product of a tradition. So from one perspective, Homer is right smack in the middle of a tradition, the so-called Indo-European tradition, a tradition that dates to around 3500 BC, which is some 2750 years before Homer, who, it is conventionally said, lived some 2750 years before now. A traditional poet in this sense is one who takes old material and passes it along orally. Think, if you will, of jam sessions, folk festivals, and campfires, with one generation transferring, handing down the words and music to those who come next, maintaining the themes, the structure, and much of the rhetoric, but always improvising, tweaking here and there. A consequence of this perspective, albeit one it would be unfruitful for me to try explore properly in this context, is that there was almost certainly not one blind genius named Homer who composed the Iliad or the Odyssey, never mind both, an idea that, despite what Lattimore writes in his two introductions, nearly all scholars reject anyway on linguistic grounds. Instead, the epics are products of a deep tradition Oral poems that at some point, probably in the 6th century BC, were codified in more or less the form we now have them in a plethora of scholarly editions, 15,693 verses for the Iliad, 12,109 for the Odyssey. You may be sad to hear what I've just said, and I can understand that. In addition, you may think that somehow these great poems are less great if there is no single Homer with both a birth and a death date whose name is attached to them. But if you think this, you are wrong, or at least you are in my opinion anyway. Let me quote something from the pen of the wonderful John Agresto, who among many other prestigious positions held the presidency of St. John's College in Santa Fe from 1989 to 2000. This quotation comes from an excellent book that Agresto published last year, The Death of Learning, how American education has failed our students and what to do about it. A book, by the way, that has as the title of its introduction, The Great Iliad Question. I won't tell you what the question is or the answer. Go read the book. Anyway, this is what Agresto writes. Quote, my hunch is that only second class books are truly captives of their time. Great works are more universal. They speak to us effectively as timeless. First-class works would mean no less if their authors were known only as anonymous and their date listed as unknown. Now, no reasonable person would deny that the Iliad and the Odyssey are first-class works, and how wonderful it is, in my view, that they have universal appeal, that they spoke to Greeks in the Iron Age, that they speak to us in the internet age, and that in some form or another, direct predecessors of their words and themes also spoke to our Indo-European ancestors around the advent of the Bronze Age. In some ways, we are very different from people back then, but in other ways, we are the same. It is important to understand how, both for better and sometimes maybe for worse, the mores of their culture and ours often seem at odds. But it is at least as important that we recognize our shared humanity. And this shared humanity, coupled with the excellent tales they tell, is presumably what explains the veritable glut of translations on the market. Over 20 translations of the Iliad into English have been published since Lattimore's in 1951, including, astonishingly, more than a dozen since the start of this century. And there are even more translations of the Odyssey than the Iliad. Six years ago, Emily Wilson, a professor of classics at the University of Pennsylvania, published a translation of the Odyssey that catapulted her to fame of a sort that professional classicists almost never achieve. Not in the first place for the quality of her rendering, though, I'm sorry to say, but because she happens to be a woman. <laughs> right now, her translation of the Iliad, published two weeks ago, is a bestseller. 
and you can pick up just about any newspaper or magazine and find a review, most of them extremely positive, but a few extremely negative. Indeed, you can read, read my review, a positive one, which appeared on the day of publication in the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute, Public Discourse, a terrific venue that happens this very day to be celebrating its 15th anniversary. Now, presumably some people who buy all these translations, some people aside from students and faculty in Santa Paula, California, actually read them. Regardless, this extraordinary level of commercial interest is surprising in view of the steep decline in respect for the ancient world at most American colleges and universities, where moves to decolonize the curriculum and calls to burn it all down are wreaking both intellectual and social havoc. And rarely more than this week, with large parts of the ivory tower establishment cheering on Hamas over Twitter or X or whatever we are now supposed to call it and insisting that what is happening in Israel is a necessary and desired product of what I have no hesitation in referring to as their sick efforts to pervert both language and basic human values. Meanwhile, though, classical schools are popping up everywhere. Thomas Aquinas has a second campus, and there is a small but steady stream of new and serious colleges, both religious and secular, so the battle may yet be won. I am in the first place a linguist, so you won't be surprised that I believe in reading original texts when possible. Please go learn Greek and other foreign languages as well as Latin if you don't already know them but there is no doubt but that a good translation with just the right turn of phrase can be illuminating even to someone who does not need it. And in much the same way I contend, understanding what lies beneath a text can illuminate a so-called original, especially when it comes to traditional oral poetry where the very concept of the original is murky. And with that, I return to the first Homeric phrase on which I dwelled some minutes ago, the description of the deaths of Patroclus and Hector in the Iliad, which Virgil appropriated to describe the deaths of Camilla and Turnus in the Aeneid, the latter, you will remember, in the very final verses. There is a linguistic problem with the Greek verse that Lattimore translates this way. Mourning her destiny, that is to say the destiny of the mortal soul of Patroclus and Hector, mourning her destiny, leaving youth and manhood behind her. What's this problem? In brief, it does not scan. Well, this is obviously not the occasion for a lesson in the niceties of the metrical form that is the Homeric hexameter. But what is important to understand is that the verse in question appears to be hopelessly unmetrical, entirely beyond repair, because one of its syllables, which needs to scan short, consists of a vowel followed by not one, not two, but three consonants, which makes it not merely heavy, but extra heavy. The opposite of short, it can only scan long. At issue, to be specific, is the initial A of the word androteta, manhood, whose beginning, andr, we have borrowed in English in such words as android, a man-like robot, and androgynous, having the characteristics of both man and woman. You'll notice that that initial A is followed by three consonants, an N, a D, and an R. Well, you're now muttering to yourselves, so what? Who cares? Isn't Katz taking his microscope beyond where it matters? And if you're thinking this, that is, in a way, a fair reaction, except that the verse is a doubly pivotal one in the story of the Iliad. This is the line that describes the death of Patroclus, which is what impels the greatest Greek warrior, Achilles, back into the fray. This is the line that describes the death of the greatest Trojan warrior, Hector, slain by the now over-the-top furious Achilles, the death that will bring the decade-long war to its conclusion. It's one thing, maybe, for there to be a minor metrical anomaly in what one might think as a throwaway line. It is quite another for there to be a major 
metrical anomaly in one of the most thematically important verses in the most famous of all Greek poems, a verse that Virgil proceeded to pick up for the very final words of the most famous Latin poem. Fortunately, a solution exists. It is, in fact, a straightforward solution, but straightforward only if you understand the tradition. In short, when the verse was first composed, many hundreds of years before the shadowy 8th century BC figure we are used to calling Homer, it was metrical. It did scan. This is a linguistic fact, not magic. The sequence andro of androteta, manhood, used to be honor with no D and with a so-called syllabic R, which is a vowel rather than a consonant. The idea of R as a vowel will no doubt take most of you by surprise, but we have the same thing in most American dialects of English at the end of the words batter, better, bitter, and butter. It's batter, not batter. In other words, the initial A of that word for manhood, androteta, was once upon a time followed by just a single consonant, and thus it scanned as it was supposed to, short. While there is much technical controversy over the details, the basic idea is clear enough. And the point for now is this. Behind the Roman rhetoric of Turnus's death lies the Greek rhetoric of the death of Hector. And behind this unquestionably lies the underappreciated tradition of pre-Greek, call it Indo-European, rhetoric. I've used the term Indo-European three times now. What does it mean? Greek is a so-called Indo-European language, as are Latin, French, Norwegian, Irish, Gaelic, Armenian, Sanskrit, Farsi, and dozens of others. Oh, and, and English. Once upon a time, around 5,500 years ago, probably on the Pontic-Caspian steppe, north of the area between the Black and Caspian Seas, all these separate languages were one. As time passed and as members of the population moved in different directions, further and further away from one another, what had started as different dialects became what no one could anymore fail to call entirely different languages. Those sisters, French, Norwegian, Irish, Gaelic, Armenian, Farsi, and English are today mutually incomprehensible. Mutually incomprehensible, and yet, after millennia apart, these languages still have words, phrases, and literary and cultural concerns in common. Indeed, one of the reasons it makes sense to study the Greek and Latin classics together is that they share a pre-literate tradition far deeper than the fact that they also happened to be spoken by powerful people who occupied huge swaths of land across much the same part of the world in historical time. It is because of this shared inheritance, because they belong to the same tradition, that the Sanskrit noun prata sounds like and is fundamentally the same as English brother, and the same as Latin, Latin frater, and the same as Irish Gaelic braher, and the same too as ancient Greek frater, which, by the way, doesn't refer to your sibling even in the earliest texts, but instead has more or less the meaning frat bro. It is, it is because of this shared inheritance, because they belong to the same tradition, that the Sanskrit verb for carry, bar, sounds like and is fundamentally the same as English bear, Latin fair, as in trans fair, Irish Gaelic bear, and ancient Greek fair, and I could go on and on and on, highlighting obvious commonalities across these and other languages in hundreds of other vocabulary items. Substances like water, animals like cows, body parts like feet, man-made objects like wheels, cosmic entities like the sun, major divinities like the sky god, all the low numbers, all the personal pronouns, most of the prepositions, verbs like be, lie, stand, etc., etc., etc. Nothing against family members, basic verbs, and the like, but let's look at a few things that are more linguistically interesting. First of all, I started my talk by remarking on the term formula which for Homer has a specific meaning that Lattimore lays out succinctly in the introduction to his translation of the Iliad. In his words, it is a, quote, 
word group of less than a line which forms a metrical unit adaptable to any place where sense demands and the meter will accommodate. And he continues, this can be most easily illustrated through the noun adjective or name adjective combinations involving the fixed epithet, although such combinations by no means exhaust the varieties of formula. Among the examples he cites are strong-grieved Achaeans, gray-eyed Athena, and Zeus of the wide brows, all of which, and many, many more, are scattered throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey and are, I should stress, a highly useful device in oral composition since they allow the singer to fill out verses and buy him time to move along the narrative in a successful, partly improvisational fashion. The subject of the Homeric formula would be a talk in itself, and a hard one for me to give to a general audience while combining a wide-angle lens with a microscope because I would need a blackboard and it would be helpful if you already knew Sanskrit, Hittite, Old Norse, and a range of other older Indo-European languages. But get to work. But the point is, the point is that these useful bits of poetic language that do so much to make Homer Homer have clear analogs elsewhere, which shows that they are a very old part of the tradition. Since it is hardly shocking that one would speak of horses as fast, you may not be all that impressed by the essentially exact correspondence between the common Homeric formula, OKS hippoi, which means swift horses, and the same phrase in two important liturgical languages that date to well before Christ. The language of India, Vedic Sanskrit, in which were composed the most important texts of Hinduism, and the earliest language of Iran, Gothic Avestan, in which were composed the most important texts of Zoroastrianism. Time has dimmed the obviousness of the relationship, but you're just going to have to trust me when I tell you that Greek OKS hippoi, swift horses, is historically sound for sound the same as Vedic Ashvas a Shava, and in Avestan, Aspongho a Sawa. Well, I actually think you should be impressed by this, but maybe you're not. And in any event, it's certainly more exciting when a noun adjective combination is compressed into a compound. Consider the case of Androphonos, manslaying, which is, of course, has, of course, the same andro as androteta, that word for manhood that I have already discussed. In Homer, the compound manslaying is used repeatedly to describe Hector and is also an epithet of the war god Ares. And lo and behold, it corresponds sound for sound to Nrhan in Vedic Sanskrit, which describes the mighty storm god Rudra and the lightning weapon of Rudra's sons, the Maruts. Curiously, amusingly, the same compound is found in Avestan too, though here the elements are reversed. It's literally slay man, junra, rather than manslay. And here's another example, an especially famous one, though it's not strictly speaking a formula from the Homeric point of view, since Homer uses the phrase only once. In book nine of the Iliad, in another passage that ranks as one of my favorites, Achilles speaks to his would-be comrades about his twofold fates not unlike the way Hector has already spoken so poignantly to his wife in book six. His choice, Achilles muses, is to return home and live a long life without renown or to fight against the Trojans, die, and thereby achieve kleos athiton, which is generally translated as imperishable fame. Lattimore prefers glory everlasting. Here's Lattimore's rendering of the scene. This is Achilles. My mother Thetis, the goddess of the silver feet, there's a famous formula, tells me I carry two sorts of destiny toward the day of my death. Either if I stay here and fight beside the city of the Trojans, my return home is gone, but my glory shall be everlasting. But if I return home to the beloved land of my fathers, the excellence of my glory is gone, but there will be a long life left for me, and my end in death will not come to me quickly. 
Whether translated as imperishable fame or glory everlasting, the Greek phrase kleos aphthiton is a remarkable product of the tradition I have been describing. On its own, the word for fame or glory, kleos, is a buzzword in the Iliad. And in addition to being related to the English adjective loud, you're no one if people don't talk about you with great volume, it is the second element of so many compound personal names that you know like the playwright Sophocles, famed for wisdom, the general and politician Pericles, famed all around, and the demigod Heracles, perhaps better known in his Roman form, Hercules, having Hera's fame. But combining that noun, kleos, with the adjective meaning imperishable or everlasting, yields Achilles' unique kleos aphthiton, imperishable fame, and this is sound for sound cognate with, that is to say, historically exactly the same as the Vedic Sanskrit phrase shravas akshitam, which petitioners request of Indra, the highest god in the pantheon of ancient India, in a hymn in book one of the oldest sacred Hindu text, the Rig Veda. So something of what would become the heroic warrior code was thus there already in the language before the split between Greek and our earliest language of the Indian subcontinent. And to me, as a classicist and as a linguist and as a humanist, few things are lovelier and more meaningful than such deep soundings in the well of tradition. Well, let me begin to wrap up. I'm going to pass over the question of the historicity of the Iliad and the connection with the societal collapse around the Eastern Mediterranean that ended the Bronze Age in the first quarter of the 12th century BC. But in the Greek imagination, the Trojan War was a massive event, a decade long, involving tens of thousands of soldiers and their families. So how then to tell such an expansive tale vividly? especially when everyone in the 8th and later century BCs, centuries BC was already intimately acquainted with the plot, a fact that allows Homer to mention the act that started it all, the judgment of Paris, only in passing in the 24th and final book of the Iliad, a fact that allows Homer to ignore the Trojan horse in the Iliad and mention its existence only once in the Odyssey, a fact that allows Homer to fail entirely to depict the death of Achilles by Paris's arrow to his eponymous heel. Well, Homer's solution to how to tell the tale is to give his listeners, these days usually his readers, snapshots. The Iliad is set over only a little over 50 days, and mostly just five, in the course of the 10th and final year of the war. And the Odyssey takes place over only 40 days at the end of its protagonist's journey home from war 10 years later on. If you had to distill the stories of Homer's epics into one word each, you would probably say that the Iliad is about wrath or rage, in Greek, menen, and the Odyssey about a man, andra. By the way, that's that andra yet again. Wrath or rage or anger, the last Lattimore's choice, which is too weak to my eyes and ears, wrath or rage or anger is the opening word of the first poem, which can be read as an extended meditation on the consequences of one human being's destructive emotion. And man is the opening word of the second, which is an extended account of the many twists and turns, the ups and downs of another multifaceted human being. Aristotle in the Poetics famously praises Homer for his narrative focus, and this focus does indeed bring the massive down to a human scale and make all the complicated goings-on easier to relate to, and relate to Homer's poems we all do, and have done for almost three millennia. It would have made little sense for me not to have highlighted Virgil, but I could easily have decided not to mention Xenophon, Socrates, or Cicero, and instead substituted, say, Herodotus and Ovid, which is one of the points I wish to drive home. Take pretty much any classical author or topic 
and it is easy to bring in the Iliad and the Odyssey. In fact, I wager that you can take most modern authors and topics and make a non-trivial connection to Homer with no more than one degree of separation and frequently no separation at all. What makes these tales excellent is what I have already called their humanity. The fact that they contain so much of human experience, so much that each of us knows from personal highs and lows. They tell of gods and men, of valor and defeat, of love and jealousy, of pride and piety. All the emotions are in there, all the complexities that make people people. Even the best of us have flaws, sometimes grave ones, and even the worst of us are nonetheless human. When you read these poems, you see the best in our world and the worst. And maybe this act of reading makes all of us engage in the important task of trying ourselves to be better and to do the right thing. Should I have used my time to wax eloquent about a few larger scenes or about grand themes in one or both of the Iliad and the Odyssey? Perhaps. I admit that earlier this week, I even considered scrapping this talk entirely and instead talking with you about what it is like to read violent, sickening death after violent, sickening death in the ancient Middle East while watching violent, sickening death after violent, sickening death not so far away from Troy today. But I am no expert in modern international affairs, so I thought it better to leave a detailed accounting of such horrors to others and to the general discussion to which we are about to turn. What I hope to have done is piqued your interest in one or more perspectives that are likely to be different from what you are used to. For one thing, I hope you are intrigued by a wide-angle lens that looks at Homer beyond Homer, before Homer, beyond Greek, and before Greek. For another, I hope you are intrigued by what one can see when one takes a microscope to individual Homeric words and phrases. And finally, and most of all, I hope you now see how it is possible to look at Homer through a wide-angle lens and a microscope at the same time. It is said that Alexander the Great, who had Aristotle as his tutor, slept with the Iliad under his pillow. I'm not going to tell you to do that. After all, like Achilles and Hector, he died young, though great. But it and the Odyssey are truly grand poems with a lifetime of lessons to impart. And I urge you, especially the young among you, to keep them close, both now and for decades to come. And in particular, when you pass along your and our traditions to your children, and to your children's children, I hope you will remember both that Homer is, and also, in a wondrous way, is not the beginning of so many of these traditions. Thank you.